You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. In our teaching journey to Easter, we've covered some, covered some ground on this Meet Jesus series. Uh, kind of one of the things that <clears throat> would be a shame every season around now is we, we miss Easter because we think Easter's next Sunday. Right? We, we kind of miss the, this season, um, this celebration. So even I've posted on our Gateway group page um, this readings from John 12 on through the end of the chapter uh, 21 to kind of carry you through even the Sunday after Easter. I encourage you to do that. But this has kind of framed this message series. Well, who, who is this Jesus that we celebrate next Sunday? So we talked about Jesus as the God-man. Um, Pastor Harry followed with Jesus as teacher. Last week, we introduced ourselves to Jesus as healer. And <clears throat> this Sunday, we get to meet Jesus as king. The talk of kings and kingdoms seems like something like we would have discussions from a bygone era. In fact, though, there are a number of nations, more than I thought, that still operate under some kind of monarchy. The one we're most familiar with, uh, though, is the United Kingdom or Great Britain. I've always had a fascination with, with royalty, with Great Britain. Um, I've, I've been to London twice. Um, I've done the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace I was actually even fortunate enough to see the flag drop, which means that the queen is leaving. Actually, when it's not there, the queen's not there. I, I got to see it drop, and then her and I had a brief interaction. Um, it was really brief because she was driving by pretty fast, and I, I took this picture I still have of kind of her in the back seat of that car. Um, went to the Tower of London to see the crown jewels. Pretty disappointing because they put you on a conveyor, and you don't get to stay and stand and gawk. You just kind of have to watch pretty fast and go on. Um, <clears throat> I've always had a fascination with Winston Churchill and all things Bond, James Bond. <laughs> and I know that's not royalty, but that's just a little quirk in my personality uh, from Winston Churchill to James Bond. So we can discuss which is my favorite Bond later if you care to have that information. We, we like the fairy tale part of royalty, the glitz and glamour of royalty, the pageantry, pageantry and the regalness of royalty. Um, but we revolt, I mean literally, we revolt against the subservient posture of being subject to royals. Royalty is novel to be around, novel to gawk at, but it's something different to live underneath it. But then again, I guess it kind of all depends on who the royal is. And here is the royal reality of today. Jesus is king. Now, today's Palm Sunday, Sunday that, uh, immediately before Easter, and in Gateway's history, Palm Sunday is our birthday. We launched 14 years ago this Sunday, that's 729 Sundays ago, um, on Saturday night before Palm Sunday, it's always kind of an anxious still time for me, because 24 people got up early to un unload a 24-foot trailer not knowing who we were going to meet on that Sunday. Um, actually, I met Tom and Anna on that Sunday. Um, and I still, every Saturday night, I go to bed anxious and excited about who 
I will get to meet tomorrow. Now, it's an important day. It's a birthday, but it's like a lot of birthdays you've celebrated in your life. Some of them you celebrate, some of them you go, eh, right? And you move on past. We've done a couple of those in a row now, birthday 13 and birthday 14. We won't do it at birthday 15. So you, you want to be here. Mark, go ahead and put it down. Put a, put a reminder in. You want to be here Palm Sunday um, next year. In Jewish history, which may be a little bit more significant to the topic today, Palm Sunday was the Sunday that the Jewish families would set aside uh, from their own flock or they would purchase a lamb that was going to be prepared um, and roasted for the Passover meal, which would take place on Thursday. So it's a very significant march into Passover. Passover was always a big celebration that carried a lot of buzz. But on this Passover, the pulse was noticeably higher. The volume level was raised because there was an impromptu parade thrown for Jesus. Jesus would have entered the city for Passover all his years prior. And at no point in time do we have any record of Jesus entering into the city on Palm Sunday with just such a ruckus. He was, um, he was entering um, with kind of a, a king, a victorious king's homecoming, a king that would have come back from war. He would have been, the celebration would have given the indication that he would have been on this kind of mighty steed, high above everyone, kind of prancing into the city, and yet it wasn't anything of the kind. He's not on his majestic steed. He's on a, a donkey. He's not, he's not on something royal. He's on a beast of burden. And not just any donkey. This would have been even a smaller donkey. This would have been a donkey that will read, has never even been ridden before. So this donkey would not have placed Jesus at some high level of standing. In fact, if you do the, the measurements, he probably would have been about probably the same head level as everybody else. And yet, he was entering into this kind of, this ruckus, this roar. Jesus would be the king they hoped for just not the way they had expected it. Let's read a little of the story of Luke 19. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I want to pause there because I love love, love, how Jesus receives this imperfect, 
and not fully informed worship. The people do not know the totality of what is taking place, yet their words are true. And so Jesus says, let them stand. He was a king. He was coming in the name of his father. He was coming to bring peace. And this is an important detail for me because week in and week out, we stand in this room and we sing songs of praise and worship. And on our best days, on our best days, we might sing them full of faith. But in, with many days, I would guess we sing them with some level of doubt. God's good. He overcomes. He'll never let me down. We want to believe it. Then there are days where we'll have trouble even singing at all because the experience of possibly our week, our month, or even our life in general has, has knocked the wind out of us. When you've had the wind knocked out of you, you have trouble saying anything, much less singing because all of what singing is is a push-up of the diaphragm of, of air out. So why is it there are Sundays in which it's difficult to even worship? So if our worship is imperfect, sometimes it's in doubt, sometimes it's barely uh, something that we can enunciate. Why is this story important? Because Jesus was not concerned in the moment of how imperfect it was, he wasn't concerned about um, of their under, full understanding of who they were even worshiping. Why? Because what they were saying was true. Because the power of worship comes in what's being said as true. That's where the power goes. And Jesus knows that when we will worship, that he refills our lungs with his breath, with his ruach, with his spirit. And listen, I'm sure there are plenty of times or at least there's been at least one time in your life where you entered a service or you entered somewhere and tried to sing something and your week or your lifestyle was completely opposite of what you were professing. So why would God accept praise from someone like that? Because when we sing what is true, it begins realigning our heart with his. My mom used to think that Singing before the message was a waste of time. <laughs> she just wanted to hear the sermon. And yet, and yet as, as much as I might try, what moves us emotionally is when we sing. When you will allow yourself, because there's some level of abandon that has to take place to sing. Men, I get it. Men don't stand up in places and sing out loud. In what other environment, Sean, do you stand next to somebody and sing out loud and raise your hands? Probably none. If you do it at work, I mean, maybe, right? But here, we're not just encouraged to do it. We're compelled to do it because of, as, as the presence begins entering the room, as we begin raising our voice in worship, there is this compelling nature. I think it takes, listen, I think it takes more effort to do this than it does to do this takes more effort to frown than it is to smile, we're told. And I love this part of this passage because, because even when we don't get it right, as long as we get something, 
he's not going to stop it. He didn't break out into a teaching session. Well, I know what they're saying, but they don't have a full understanding. What, what he comes back with to the Pharisees is, listen, if you think this is a commotion. See, what the Pharisees was concerned about was that if, if th this kind of parade was, was, was going to cause such a commotion that the Romans would come in and to stop this celebration, that if it was going to turn into an uprising, they were going to have to stop it. And if they're going to stop it, they're going to stop it at the beginning of it. And Jesus' really response is kind of like, guys, listen, this may be causing a stir for you, but if they don't recognize a victorious king entering into the city, then my creation is. And if you want a problem, that's going to be a problem, right? That's going to be a problem. If, creation, if that tree over there starts talking, this is a problem, right? Great part of this passage so the, re the royal reality that Jesus teaches us right here is that he's king and he's worthy of praise. He's worthy of it. He's deserved it. Let's read further. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What a juxtaposition of emotions in this short passage. He is entering into uh, the clamoring of, of a king and, and in all of that joy and circumstance, he gets to the place where he can now see the city of Jerusalem and he is filled with sorrow to the point of tears. There are only two occasions in the Gospels we have recorded that Jesus cried. And they're almost back to back. When he shows up and he encounters Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus, his friend, Martha comes out to ask, where were you? And in the response, Jesus responds to her differently than he does to Mary. Mary had the same question, where were you? Jesus' answer to Martha is, I'm the resurrection of life. Do you believe this? This is not the end. Do you believe this? And Martha wanted to believe it. Mary, it's kind of a whole different story. Mary is heartbroken. And Jesus responds to her in a way she needed, just like he responded to Martha in the way she needed. Mar Martha needed this intellectual, wrap-it-around answer. Mary just needed to know, did you even care? And how does Jesus express his care for Mary? He cries with her. What warranted his tears? Because in just a few minutes, he was going to step over to this tomb and say, Lazarus, come out. So he wasn't sad because it had happened. His emotions were was connected to Mary's. Now his emotions aren't this, this, this compassion per se. He is, he, is, um, he is moved to sorrow of the unrepentance of Jerusalem. I was here. I've been here among you. Even unhidden, if you will, for the last three plus years, and yet you've rejected me. And he was sorrowful over that. He wasn't thumbing his nose at it. He wasn't. He, he was sorrowful to the point that it's the only, the second time we have 
him crying. The people were were right to look for a king. A king was who was promised. Their failure wasn't in looking for a king. Their failure was in their perception of his actions and the perception of what that promised peace would look like. Now, you've heard the phrase, right? Perception is reality. You've heard the phrase. You've used the phrase. Most of the time, it's excuse when that phrase is used. I hate that phrase. I mean, I, mean, I have a guttural reaction when someone says perception is a reality. Why? Because the statement's not true. It's not remotely true. Linguistically, in fact, it's impossible. Here, here is the definition of perception. A thought, belief, or opinion based on what? Appearances. Reality. The state of things as they are rather than as they imagined to be or appear to be. So the fact is perception is the exact opposite of reality. Anybody count stairs when you go up and down stairs? Anybody besides me? So, you know, there's a lot of us. All right, I don't know what the neurosis is, but I count stairs up and down. All right, have you ever perceived that you were on the last step here? You know what I'm saying, right? When you perceive that you're on the last step and you take the next step, the reality is, is you're on your face, right? So my perception does not change the fact that there's one more stair. So you get my point. Perception is not reality. And yet that is what they were leaning on. They were leaning on their perception. What is your perception of Jesus? Religious figure? Okay. But that's a limiting perception. Do you go a step more that he was a moral teacher? Okay. But that's also very limiting. What about savior? Is that your perception? It's getting warmer. It's getting better. But there's still more to Jesus. Because what this passage is clearly trying to communicate to everyone for all time is that Jesus is king. He is the absolute power, the absolute authority of me, of this age, and the age to come. That he is king. My perception of Jesus doesn't change who he is. It only changes who I can become. The closer my perception of Jesus is to the reality of his kingship raises me. Jesus is identified as the king who will bring peace. What is your perception of peace? Most of us, our perception of peace is that no pain, no strain, everything kind of okay. Like, Like I function better. Well, let me say it differently. I hardly function well when there is not peace around me. So I only have, we only have one child. <laughs> I, I asked Nate and Gretchen, they have two. I said, do you want to bring the kids up with you? And they went, first service, they went, no. Because <laughs> they're little, they're lo- you saw the oldest one, right? So if peace is going to be conditional on, are we okay? Tina, are we Okay. I ask that a lot sometimes, folks. Are we okay? Because see, if we're okay, then I'm, I'm good. I can function and my mind works good. But Eric, if we're not okay, man, it eats me up inside. So if that's our definition of peace, 
peace will always be short-lived because circumstances continually change. The phone continues to ring. And my perception of peace is when everything's right in my little circle. You can have that perception, but that perception will limit the kind of peace you will be able to experience because there is a greater peace available in Christ. It is a peace that is the removal of the barrier, relational barrier that we have with his father. And that peace is, is a holistic peace. It's a, it's a shalom peace. It's a wholeness peace. Um, it, it, it carries even the connotation of a, pros, a prospering in that peace. And if I have an understanding that that's the peace available to me, and that peace is available through King Jesus, then I will not be limited in the peace I can experience. Your perception matters. What does it take to change a perception into a reality? It takes an experience. Perceptions are changed into reality with an experience. And so I want to move from a group of people who were hanging out around Jesus to a man that was hanging next to him. Because his experience will completely change the perception of who Jesus is. Why? Because perceptions are easily swayed, but experiences stick. Luke 22. We'll keep with the gospel writer Luke and get to this passage. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. We are, we are five days removed from Hosanna, Hosanna. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus, Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless woman in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And I mean, it's amazing to me that there's, there's this time out for this piece of Jesus. You know what he's saying? He's telling them, he's describing now is what he's doing. He's saying, if, if, if they have seen and witnessed my compassion and my power and they're doing this to me now and they've seen it, what is it going to look like a decade, a century from the firsthand experience of his compassion and his grace and his mercy and his healing? You know what it looks like? It looks like now. And he's, he's basically prophesying that on the way to the cross. You're crying now. I get it, but there's going to be a lot more tears shed in the future. Isn't it interesting that Jesus as king was lost on just about everyone, and it's recognized by the most unlikely person? Here's verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Now, I don't want you to think criminal like shoplifter. I don't want you to think criminal as some executive crime of the moving of a decimal point. Think criminal 
that would have committed a crime that warranted the most brutal execution known in history. So I just don't want you to get the opinion, here's a guy that just took a wrong turn somewhere. Okay? Committed crimes that the punishment legally, the only one that would satisfy would be his public death. No, I don't want anybody to romanticize who these people are. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The reference here is to the people that's literally nailing him to this cross, following through this execution. The best way I can understand that is in this moment of compassion, Jesus is speaking to his father and saying, there are plenty of things to hold against everybody here. Don't hold this one against him. They don't have the capacity to know what they're doing in this moment. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, so it's still on trial here, his kingship, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. The person who dictated that, who put that sign in order was Pilate. I believe Pilate had maybe had a better understanding of what was going on than most people. In fact, when the Pharisee leaders saw the inscription, they had an edit. They said, no, 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 don't write that. Let it say, and he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate's response is, it's already gone to print. That's going to stand. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insight, insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let's pause. When you, he did, when you come into your what? Who comes into their kingdom? Kings do. Now, this criminal has no context, no conception of the language that I have, that maybe you have, if you grew up in church or have been around church or Christianity for any length of time. There was, there was no, ask Jesus into my heart. Make Jesus Lord of your life. There was, there was he, had no, he had no concept of understanding to say, um, I'm a sinner and you're not. He recognizes he doesn't deserve to be here. I have complete, I own my own stuff. This is, this is the response that I get for my actions. But he doesn't have any language, any model of how to approach Jesus as Savior. But he says, will you remember me? 
the, the best imagery I can have comes from a, a different era. It comes from my father's era. When my father would say to me, son, if you make your bed, you got to lie in it. it. It was this overwhelming sense of personal responsibility. That if I made that decision, I have to live with the consequence. I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm not going to pass it off on someone else. It's mine and mine alone, and I will bear it. I, and it's the only context that I can have that this man would say. He wouldn't say, forgive me. He doesn't understand what to say about that. He says, Re- remember me. But look, he knows that he's king. And he knows there's something different and something after this life. So what's Jesus' response? Was it, sorry, bud. You just have too much under the bridge. You've waited too long. If we could have had this conversation two years ago, something could be done about it. But not now. You're right. Too much water under the bridge. It's not what we get, is it? We get, today, you will be with me in paradise. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? You want to know what heaven's like? Jesus just tells us what it's like. Paradise. Say, Pastor, that's a really broad term. I'm not sure it's very descriptive. I'll tell you that I believe heaven is that broad that we're not going to be able to understand any description. Paradise. The the word would have the connotation of Eden. It's going to be like it was always designed and created to be. That our relationship with God would be all that was ever designed and dreamed and imagined to be. Our bodies imagined to be. Today you will be with me in a place like that. I think if I was allowed to script his response, it would have been this. Sir... You have lived in a, in, the, in a world of brokenness, and it has broken you. Yet today you will be with me. Say with me. In a perfect paradise. The way the world was originally designed, and in a relationship with me that you were relig- originally designed for. This passage is of extreme importance to me because it was Easter many years ago after my mom had passed away and my dad had attended church with us at Easter and we were having a conversation in my garage and he was emotional which my dad never was and I pointedly asked my dad about salvation and what he said to me was I know that he is, I know that Jesus is Jesus and I know that I'm a sinner and he never could get anything really out. He just, but I, 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 he just never could get it. Well, I remember being pretty torn up and one early morning prayer, I was really pleading to the Lord for the salvation of my father. And as clearly as I've ever heard anything in my life, what I heard the Lord say to me was, Your father is already saved. Now listen, I don't want to give this, I don't want to give this image of that I believe salvation is is ambiguous. It's not. 
It's not. We're a sinner. We've all sinned. Listen, we inherited a sinful nature, but we've added to it. And the only thing that breaks that sin barrier is a confession that Jesus is who he is, that we're sinners, and that we ask him for I, I, I. But I said, well, Lord, I've never heard him say the prayer. Here, here. So here's my context. Lord, I never heard him express it in any way in which I've ever said to someone, repeat after me. Now, church folk just laughed at that because they know exactly what I'm saying. He said, he said Charlie, he's, he's recognized me as Savior and he doesn't deserve salvation. And in his own way, he was saying, remember me when I, you enter the kingdom. So, and the Lord also told me something very specific after that. Stop talking to your dad like he's not a follower of Christ. And I changed how I talked to him. I changed how I talked about him. Just changed completely. Fast forward. We were here. We planted the church. Um, my dad never, never came to the church. Never. He came the night before our first service while we were setting some of the stuff up. He didn't come. He had some health issues going on, which made him afraid of being somewhere for any length of time. Well, it wasn't long after that, October, he's in hospice care. My aunt and uncle are visiting to help take care of dad because of all the stuff that was going on starting a church. And they were both very concerned and really wanted me to have the hard conversation with my father. And I said, I'm not having it. I had that with God a long time ago. I'm talking to dad like you get to see the God that mom gets to see. You know, I still contend that my dad was the most surprised person ever walking into heaven. I would really love to have a recording of what that sounded like when he got there. And, uh, but they were both very concerned. And I said, I'm sorry, I've settled that. You're going to have to settle that yourself. And on a particular morning, they both came to me that afternoon and said at a separate time in his house, in separate rooms, God had confirmed to both of them. You might not have a language for it. You don't need a language for it. You need a heart for it. Listen. Everybody has to choose a king. You might say, can I just, is that a really a real thing? Can I just live in the moment? Can I just kind of make decisions as they come? You can. But avoiding the choice doesn't make the choice avoidable. And your king choice is crucial because it determines who you live for, how you live, and what the outcome of your life is going to be. Each king choice comes with different outcomes and a different power. And there may be more kings than this, but I've narrowed it down to this. First king choice is that nobody is king. This is kind of going to take one day at a time. Well, when no one is your king, everyone is your king. And everything is your king. So whatever the loudest voice in the room is, there's your king. And it will lead to an aimless ambiguous life now and it doesn't lead to paradise the other option is me as king so if that's the case then what you see is what you get with this choice you can become self-dependent and self-sufficient 
But the only thing that you will experience in life will be self-generated. Nothing more. What you can produce, that's what you get. Nothing more. And that's a very limiting way to live. And it also does not lead to paradise. Or you can choose Jesus as king. And paradise is the future. And the present is filled with direction, the kind of peace we've talked about, and power. Even in the imperfection and the hardship that you can experience now, you have the peace and power of Jesus, our King, the way we were created to live. The reality is, you have to choose a king. Come on up, team. In the introduction, I asked, who would want to live subject to a royal? And the answer is still the same. It depends on who your royal is. So how about a royal who died so that you could live a life more than you ever could have dreamed of? What about a royal who died so that you could live in paradise after this life ends? How about a royal who walked every dusty and lonely road you have ever walked, and he did so so that you would never have to walk a road like that alone again? What about a royal who's experienced every empty emotion, faced all the same opposition, and didn't fold so that we could face them all in the same power? How about a royal who doesn't point but leads, one who doesn't take but gives, and one who doesn't overlook but empowers? On our coffee mugs that we give away to guests, it has a phrase on there that came out of an Easter message, I don't know how many years ago. And, and it just ended up being more of an anthem around here. And it says, known and loved. It summed up that Easter, but it sums up, sums up really the gospel. Jesus knew everything about that criminal. Everything. He didn't have to look at a rap sheet. He had a complete understanding of every choice that man had ever made. Every decision. Every action. There was not one thing hidden from his spirit in conjunction to the life of that man. And he loved him, not in spite of it. He loved him and hung on that cross for him in the same manner that he knows every single intricate detail about you. Every choice you've made, every choice you're making. And he doesn't come off the cross to correct you. He stays on the cross to forgive you. This is the, the beauty of the moment is that he, he didn't have some false perception of who fallen humanity was. He, he was living under the weight of the reality of that. And he stays. Isn't that a king worth being subservient to? 
I think it is. If you're wondering if you have a king, I would ask you just to review your life. Because when you review your life, you'll realize who your king is. If Jesus is your king, then I encourage you to align your entire life with his kingdom. Pinpoint, pinpoint the areas of your life that aren't in alignment with him being king in his kingdom and realign. How do you know if something's out of alignment? Look at the tires. How are you wearing? Your front tires will tell you if your car is in line or not. I can give you a crash course after service if you want me to. How are you wearing? How are you wearing? If Jesus isn't your king today, you have the opportunity to do exactly what that criminal did on the cross. Father, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And his response to you, it will be the same response that he gave to that criminal. Today, this is settled. Today, the issue is put to bed. You are mine, my child. And you will be with me now. I will be with you now, and you will be with me later. Father, sense your presence in the room. And Lord, I pray the, now for the, the realignment of perception with what each person watching online or in the room, the, the realignment of perception and reality. That you are who you said you were. Every promise is yes and amen in you on the cross. This is where, this is where you really became king. And so for one, I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ would evaluate who's been king lately and do some shifting. And Father, maybe for those who aren't have yet to make a decision of who was going to be king of their life, would see this, Lord, not just as a decision of who was going to be the authority, who was going to tell me what to do, but one who was going to make me new, wholly new. In the moment, the team is going to lead us back in that song that we sang to end worship. It's the king of my heart. And there's communion at the back table. The altar was full last Sunday in both services asking Jesus for healing. I wonder, I just wonder how it will look when we're realigning our lives with his kingdom. If you have something to realign or if you have someone 
that you want to make king for the first time, I encourage you to move. Move to an altar. Move to your knees. Movement will matter. You stand for worship, and I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.